All right, so we are in um, week two of a six-week series going through the epistle of 1 Timothy. Uh, last week, we did some introduction, and we made it through verse 11 of chapter 1. Uh, today, we're going to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 1, and then I'm going to start into chapter 2 and just try and honestly get as far as we get. Um, if you're familiar with 1 Timothy, you're probably thinking, why on earth would you stop at verse 5? Because that's not a natural place to stop. Um, and it is not a natural place to stop, but I also have a shorter week next week. I want to make sure we can get through the end of chapter 2. Uh, so we're, we're just going to go in and cover the first several verses of chapter 2, and then we'll, uh, we'll continue on next week. So let me pray for us, and then we'll do a little bit of recap of last week, and then we'll pick up in verse 12. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we praise you and thank you uh, this morning that you have called us out to be your particular people, that you have redeemed us in Christ. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine your word to us. Pray that you would edify your church, you would grow and build us up in every way into the image and likeness of Christ Jesus. Uh, we pray a blessing on, on this time this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As I said last week, we made it through verse 11 of chapter 1. Uh, we're going through 1 Timothy, uh, which is this epistle written by Paul. Uh, to Timothy, and also to the church in Ephesus where Timothy was ministering. Um, And the purpose of the letter, uh, 1 Timothy is one of the uh, three pastoral epistles, along with 2 Timothy and with Titus, and they're called pastoral because they're written specifically to ministers of the gospel, and they have instructions on how they should teach and shepherd and govern the the flock of God there in those churches um, and address specific issues in the churches. So they're not so much these kind of theological treatises that we see in some of the other epistles. Um, They're a little more, I guess, practical in that sense of church governance um, and dealing with issues. Um, And one of the big issues that Paul is addressing in 1 Timothy is some false teaching that had arisen in the church in Ephesus. So that's the primary focus. He's charging Timothy to address this false teaching. Another main purpose of the book, probably, I guess, the purpose, really, we find in this purpose verse right in the middle of the book, in 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15, Paul says this about why he's writing. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he's saying, I want you to know how you ought to behave. In other words, how then should we live? How should we interact with one another as believers Um, as fellow members, as fellow saints in the household of God. Um, And so there's these practical exhortations about how we live, how we live out the gospel together. Um, And then in in chapter 1, I mentioned the false teaching. Uh, So chapter 1 specifically is really focused on false teaching. So Paul is addressing uh, some of the error of the false teaching, how they've swerved away from the truth and wandered into myths and vain speculation. Um, And last week, we looked at one of the ways that they... Um, have swerved from the truth is misunderstanding the law and using it as a means of justification um, instead of using it as a mirror to see our sin and drive us to Christ. Um, and there's these, then there's these great kind of parallels, I think really all throughout 1 Timothy, uh, to Christ's teaching in Matthew 7 when he talks about uh, false prophets and how they'll be known by their fruit. And Paul really unpacks that in 1 Timothy, and he lays out some of the fruit, the kind of bad behavior the bad fruit of false teaching and false teachers, in contrasted with the good fruit that is produced by biblical teaching. So with that by way of recap, 
Let's go ahead and read um, 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. So we're going to walk, walk through this verse by verse. Um, but I want to say this up front. Uh, this section here might not sound like it, but is still related to false teaching. All of chapter 1 is part of this uh, section where he's addressing false teaching. And there's uh, some indication that the false teachers may have been suggesting um, extra-biblical requirements for salvation, as in Galatians and the issues that Paul's addressing there. Um, and so if so, then I think one of the main thrusts of what Paul says here in 12 to 17 is that God saved Paul um, as the foremost sinner and opponent while he's still in opposition, right? Not while he's kind of growing in knowledge or seeking the Lord, um, not while he's kind of pursuing you know, the law in a good sense, right? It's while he was opposition, while he was an opponent. So God's grace is wholly unmerited and undeserved. Uh, Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think that's what Paul is getting at here as well. So in verse 12, uh, Paul praises God here for entrusting him with the riches of the gospel and appointing him to minister. He says, he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And Paul is not, uh, he's not boasting here and having merited this commission because he immediately says that, uh, you know, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. So he's marveling at God's grace to him because of this opposition to the gospel. I'm sure many of you are already familiar with what this opposition was, uh, but we see it in Acts. I'm going to read a few verses from Acts. Um, Acts 8, 1 to 3 is this first paragraph. This is directly after the stoning of Stephen, and then uh, in chapter 7, and 8.1 picks up and says, and Saul approved of his execution of Stephen's stoning. And then it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then again in, in uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 2, uh, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul's, or Saul here, uh, later Paul, is not even content to just persecute the church in Jerusalem. He's going after those who have been scattered throughout Judea um, and wants to stamp out the gospel wherever it can be found. Um, and so Paul's clear intention in referencing this is saying, God, God didn't judge me faithful because of my track record, right? That he's saying it's the opposite of that. 
Uh, it's really just on God's uh, love to him, his grace to him, and God's electing purpose, right? His intention to work through Paul, as he says uh, later in chapter 9 and verse 15, uh, that he is my chosen instrument, right? And so that's why God called Paul out. So God supplies the faith and the grace in those he calls to his work to fulfill the ministry that he has for them. And so we have this opposition, and Paul continues in verse 13. It says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Um, he repeats this phrase, I received mercy, again in verse 16 as well. And Paul is continuing to affirm that his salvation is undeserved by referencing this, this mercy multiple times. And he says in, uh, in verse 14, in verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Um, it swallowed it up. It was too much for his sin, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. The grace of God is more powerful than our sin. And I think that's what John is getting at in 1 John as well when he says uh, in 320, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Right? God is greater. He's fully able to deal with our sin because of the limitless store of grace that is found in Christ Jesus. And I want to point out as well that when Paul mentions his um, ignorance here, he's not, um, he's not suggesting that as an excuse, like God was somehow compelled to forgive him because of this ignorance. Uh, but he's once again, I think, con- um, contrasting himself with the false teachers. So uh, when Paul was an insolent opponent, it was before he had heard the gospel, let's say, before he'd been confronted by the risen Christ, right, on the Damascus Road. And so um, I think what he's getting at is it wasn't this, you know, clear-eyed rejection of the truth, but more of a zeal without knowledge. And by contrast, the false teachers that Timothy has to deal with in Ephesus, they actually have professed the true faith, right? They've joined the church. They're part of the communion of the saints. Uh, they've said, yeah, we, you know, we agree this is true about Christ. And then they're now kind of turning on that and in a more uh, subtle and destructive way opposing the gospel through this false teaching. Uh, So I think that's why he's talking about this ignorance here. Um, And Paul's personal example is also, or personal experience, I should say, is also a great example of the transformative effect of true saving faith as contrasted by the behavior of the false teachers who profess faith and then distort the truth. So what he's saying is that God's now working in Paul. And so Paul has exhibited faith instead of the unbelief of verse 13, um, and love instead of this cruel persecution that he exhibited when he was persecuting the church previously. And so Paul continues in verse 15 and says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, unlike the teaching of the false teachers, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is Christ's goal, his purpose, his mission. This is why he uh, came. This is the reason for the incarnation, right? To redeem a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So his purpose was to live this perfect life and die the atoning death to reconcile his people to God. This is why Christ came. And Paul says, uh, furthermore, of whom I am the foremost... Um, And I think Paul still has this opposition that he referenced uh, to the gospel in mind, and he's recognizing it and and writing here that that's a tremendously awful sin, right, to persecute Christ's people. 
Um, and by extension, Christ himself, or as Jesus tells him, you know, in that vision on the Damascus Road, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? So there's this identification between Christ and his people. Um, and Paul recognizes the weight of that sin uh, against Christ. And I, we see this, uh, I think, this really wonderful uh, progression in how Paul writes about himself, how he thinks about himself and his sin throughout the epistles. Um, so I want to lay that out uh, for a minute here. In 1 Corinthians uh, 15.9, which is written between 53 and 55 AD, Paul says this, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. All right, so he's referencing that same persecution. I persecuted the church of God, and he's viewing himself as the least of the apostles because of that. And then uh, several years later, you know, seven to ten years later in Ephesians uh, 3.8, written in 62 AD, he says, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he's gone from the least of the apostles to the least of the saints. And then a few years later in 1 Timothy one fifteen, written in the mid-60s, about 65 AD, he says that he is the foremost of sinners, right, the chief of sinners. Um, and so we see that progression, least of the apostles, least of the saints, and then the greatest sinner. I am the greatest sinner. He that's not a false humility. He's actually writing and proclaiming that. Um, and I think that that experience actually should be normative for the believer, that as we grow in maturity, as we grow in knowledge, we actually grow in humility as well. And that's a, that's a core mark of maturity, uh, that we should grow in awareness for our sin, even as our sanctification increases. So we have this, this great grace that God has shown Paul, And then in verse 16, he continues to describe why he received mercy. So he says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, uh, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So he's saying, you know, in a nutshell here, that God delights to save vile sinners uh, because it's a testament to his grace, right? God's grace is so great that it extends to even those like Paul who persecuted the church. And so Paul is a prime example here of the saving reach of God's power and God's grace that he can transform even strident opponents and rebels. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, pointed out that, uh, in a sense, Paul is saved not only for his own sake, right? It was for his own sake. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but also for the sake of others, since God manifested his glory and his grace in this salvation of Paul, who's this you know, great opponent of the gospel. And so the idea is this, since God saved Paul, then no one should doubt that God can save them as well, right? No one is beyond God's reach in that sense. And this applies even to the false teachers in Ephesus right now as well. So this is an implicit kind of appeal to them uh, to return, right? This, is this reminder of the limitless grace, this perfect patience of God is an offer to those who are currently opposing the gospel in Ephesus that they too can receive grace. They too should return and repent. Um, you know, since God had mercy on me, he will have mercy on you as well, essentially what Paul is saying here. Uh, God's patience is manifested in not immediately judging all of his enemies, but in effectually calling some to saving faith. And so this should be a great encouragement to the church and to us, right? There's no one that God cannot save. There's no one beyond God's saving reach. 
There's no uh, friend or family member or straying child whom God is unable to save. There's no one too sinful for God to save. Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, The gospel is not restricted in that sense. Um, And we'll see that in chapter 2 as well as we get into chapter 2. So because of this um, great uh, kindness that God has shown Paul, then Paul kind of erupts in praise in verse 17. He just overflows with praise to God who has shown him grace. And he says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is, is moved to doxology, he's moved to praise because of this personal experience of grace that he has received. So he praises God as the king of the ages, uh, that God is king. He rules over all. Exodus fifteen eighteen. the Lord will reign forever and ever. Or Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is all throughout scripture. I just picked a, very, a couple of very brief examples here. Um, and he is not only king over all, like the, crea- the creator, the preserver, the ruler of all things, uh, but he is also eternal. I think that's what, he, what uh, Paul is getting at here when he says the king of the ages. Um, I like how Psalm 90, uh, verses 1 and 2 put it. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal. He's self-existent. He's outside of time. He has always existed and will always exist. He needs nothing to sustain him whatsoever. He's king of the ages. Then Paul says he's immortal. He cannot perish, so he has always existed, and he will always exist. Um, Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27 says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Um, I love that contrast, right? He's saying uh, even the earth, the foundations of the earth, the most stable and enduring things that we know uh, will pass away. They'll fade away like a garment. They're very temporary in that sense compared to the eternality of God. You are the same. Your years have no end. So God is immortal. And then he says God is invisible, right? He is a spirit. He cannot be seen. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, Christ, has made him known, right? No one has ever seen God. He's a spirit. Colossians 1.15, again, about Christ here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right? Christ, is, Christ makes the Father uh, visible in that sense. Um, so God is invisible, he's a spirit, and there's also the sense that he's kind of beyond human examination, right? that he can only be known if he chooses to reveal himself, and that's kind of an aspect of the invisibility of God as well. We see that in Matthew eleven twenty seven. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So there's the sense that God has to reveal himself to be known by us. And then finally, he says, God alone. Uh, There is only one God. This is, you know, this is God. There's only one. There is no other. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 35 and 39. um, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. And verse 39, know therefore today and lay it to your heart 
that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. So God has no, um, he's got, he really has no rivals, right, in that sense. He alone is God. Idols are a complete figment of the sinful imagination. They are not real. They have no power. Uh, even the devil is God's creature, right? He can't do anything that God does not sovereignly ordain. And so as we reflect on um, Paul's gratitude here, um, the, there's a truth, I think, and a lesson for us in that gratitude comes from a recognition of how great the gift we have received is. So we know this on a kind of human level, right? If someone gives you several thousand dollars, you're going to be a lot more grateful to that person than someone who gives you two bucks, right? There's this, there's this difference in magnitude there, right? Um, and so Paul, we see Paul routinely breaking out into praise in his letters because he, he has a grasp on some grasp, a small grasp probably, of what God has actually done for him. He has a sense of how much he has been forgiven. Um, and so for us to do the same, we too need that recognition. We too need um, a better sense of how much God has done for us. Um, I think, you know, reflecting on my own lack of joy at times, I think this is a principal reason for, for why I have that lack of joy, is that I truly have no idea how much God has done for me. I don't know how holy he is, how much I deserve his wrath, and how much grace I've been shown. So we have to we grow into that, and then praise is kind of the natural response to it. That's why, kind of paradoxically, at the end of last week, we were talking about how reflection on the law, instead of driving the believer to despair, actually drives us to worship because it helps us understand our sin more fully and God's grace more completely. Any, uh, any comments or questions on that section before we move to verses 18 through 20? All right, First Timothy 1, 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. All right, so these uh, verses are a bookend for the entire section in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, that is dealing with this false teaching uh, very explicitly at the beginning of the book. So we had the charge to confront the false teaching, and then Paul returns to that charge here in verse 18. Um, And so the, the charge was this, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So we've got that charge, then we have the charge referenced here, and everything in between is Paul's getting into more kind of detailed description of the error of false teaching. We had the misuse of the law in 8 to 11, and then I think this implicit um, limitation of the gospel that we saw in 12 to 17. And so Paul reminds Timothy of two things to bolster him as he engages in this good warfare that Paul mentions uh, in, in verse 18 here. And so he reminds him of the charge, which we just read, and then uh, prophecies that were made about him. So that charge, as we read in verse 3, was to restrain the false teaching, 
Uh, this is what you are to do. It has the full weight of Paul's apostleship behind it. He's telling Timothy to fulfill your ministry. You know, I, as, a, as an apostle, I'm encouraging you, exhorting you to do this. And then we have the prophecy. And there are two other references to this event, which appears to have been Timothy's ordination. I'm going to read those references. 1 Timothy 4, 14, though later in the same, same book here. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And then in 2 Timothy 1.6, For this reason I, rem- I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So that 2 Timothy is kind of a more personal uh, version of the same event where, where Paul is saying, literally, my, through my hands being on you, this happened. And then verse Timothy or 1 Timothy 4 is, is more of like the council of elders view. Um, it's all the same event, I think. And everyone wants to know, what is the gift, right? What is Timothy's gift? Uh, we don't know what it was. It's not spelled out. But I think it's very safe to say that it's something related to Timothy's calling to and gifting for ministry because we know that the purpose of all the spiritual gifts is for building up for the edification of the body of Christ. So we have this reference to uh, the gift that it was accompanied by prophecy. So, and the reason I'm saying ordination is we have this phrase, like that when the council of elders laid their hands on you, that, was, that happened at ordination, and that's actually still what we do uh, today when we ordain people. Uh, but that's a reference specifically to that. Matthew Henry uh, thinks that this prophecy is related to something, or is likely something related to uh, Timothy's calling to ministry or leadership in the church. Um, and Calvin pointed out that uh, the fact that the, there's this prophecy in relation to Timothy is an encouragement to Timothy to fulfill the work that God had called him to and not be discouraged by his opponents. It's this reminder to him of who he serves, that he's here serving uh, the living God, not the expectations of men. Um, And I think that fits well with what we see in 1 Timothy because Paul exhorts Timothy multiple times to teach, multiple times to use his gift. And so this prophecy is for Timothy's encouragement, for his confidence Uh, and his calling, and in God's intention to work through him. And he's dealing with a pretty intense uh, ministry situation, if you think about it here in Ephesus, because he's got this kind of public opposition to the gospel in the form of these false teachers. And so this is very much for his encouragement to build him up as he's dealing with a very difficult pastoral situation here. And so Paul uh, reminds him of these things to encourage him as he wages the good warfare we see at the end of verse 18, as he wages the good warfare. So what is this struggle that Timothy is engaged in? Um, I think this is a reference to gospel ministry, particularly. Both the charge and the prophecies are related to public ministry, and so I think Paul's description of the good warfare here is almost certainly a reference to the public ministry of the word, rather than the Christian life per se. Right? And we know the Christian life is also described as warfare. Uh, we think of um, 2 Corinthians 10, um, 3 to 5, right? Paul says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not carnal, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We have this warfare language um, in 2 Corinthians. Ephesians 6, right? Put on the full armor of God that you may withstand in the evil day. So that we have this language consistently throughout Scripture. Um, but I think here it's a reference to the gospel ministry specifically. Paul, again, compares Timothy's work to that of a soldier in 2 Timothy, kind of as an analogy of the kind of endurance and single-mindedness 
that are necessary for the ministry. I think it's, it's helpful for us to think about why this warfare analogy is used so often in Scripture. Why is it such an apt analogy for both the Christian life and the ministry? I think a big part of that, or one reason for it at least, is that uh, both the Christian life and the ministry are part of the cosmic struggle between God and the devil, right? We're kind of brought into this conflict that has been going on ever since the fall, or ever since Satan's fall, really. The church is opposed by the devil himself, right? It, it actually has an enemy and a potent one at that. And so the, the minister of God has to contend with this false teaching. And in chapter 4, Paul actually says that the false teaching is fueled by demonic activity, which is another reminder that this is really part of this larger cosmic struggle uh, between God and between the devil. Uh, we think of you know, the Christian life itself, the believer is opposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, in First Peter, Peter says that, w- uh, that our sin wages war against our souls, uh, more of that same language, the seriousness of our indwelling sin that we have to deal with, and the call to, uh, to die to self, to put the old man to death, to live to God is a call to conflict. It's a call. It's really a fight to the death. Uh, you think of Romans 7, right? Paul's describing this, this war within us, right? The flesh and the spirit are at odds and the cause of this conflict. And so in, uh, in thinking about this conflict, I want to read a few paragraphs from a classic, a Puritan classic. Um, this is The Christian in Complete Armor by William Gurnall. And I want to read a few paragraphs from chapter 1, The Saint's Call to Arms, on the need for courage as we think about this conflict of the Christian life. So he says this, This warfare analogy reveals why there are so many who profess Christ and so few who are, in fact, Christians, so many who go into the field against Satan, and so few who come out conquerors. All may have a desire to be successful soldiers, but few have the courage and determination to grapple with the difficulties that accost them on the way to victory. All Israel followed Moses joyfully out of Egypt, but when their stomachs were a little pinched with hunger and their immediate desires deferred, they were ready at once to retreat. They preferred the bondage of Pharaoh to the promised blessings of the Lord. Men are no different today. How many part with Christ at the crossroad of suffering? Like Orpah, they go a short distance only, Ruth 1.14. They profess the gospel and name themselves heirs to the blessings of the saints. But when put to the test, they quickly grow sick of the journey and refuse to endure for Christ. At the first sign of hardship, they kiss and leave the Savior, reluctant to lose heaven, but even more unwilling to buy it at so dear a price. If they must resist so many enemies on the way, they will content themselves with their own stagnant cisterns and leave the water of life for others who will venture farther for it. Who among us has not learned from his own experience that it requires another spirit than the world can give to follow Christ fully? He's saying, essentially, how many turn back at the first suffering? I've seen this personally. I've had friends who have walked away at, at suffering. One must have the spirit of God. He says, another spirit than the world can give to follow Christ, to persevere. And then to wrap up with this, he says, let this exhort you then, Christian, to petition God for the holy determination and bravery you must have to follow Christ. Without it, you cannot be what you profess. The fearful are those who march to hell, Revelation 21.8. 
The valiant are they who take heaven by force, Matthew eleven twelve. Cowards never won heaven. Do not claim that you are begotten of God and have his royal blood running in your veins unless you can prove your lineage by this heroic spirit to dare to be holy in spite of men and devils. I love that last line, dare to be holy in spite of men and devils. This is exactly how Paul tells Timothy to wage the, the good warfare in the next verse, which we'll get into, to, be, to dare to be holy, to hold the faith with a good conscience. And his exhortation at the beginning of the paragraph is particularly apt, given how chapter 2 starts as well, where he's saying, petition God, right? He's talking about prayer here. He's saying, you need to be praying all the time, right, for the determination uh, to live out the Christian life, to persevere, to wage this good warfare. Prayer is absolutely essential. So, with that um, segue into verse 19, right, Paul is saying, how is Timothy to wage the good warfare? He is to hold faith in a good conscience. This is how he is to do it. Uh, so, holding the faith, that I think remains, means that he is to, uh, to remain steadfast, right, in this trustworthy word that he has received. He is to stand firm in the truth against whatever uh, internal sinful inclinations he might have to stray uh, into unbelief or works-based theology like the other false teachers in Ephesus have done, and against whatever external opposition or persecution may come. And so this is of absolutely utmost importance for the minister of, of the gospel to stay on point, to stay, to hold the faith, right, to stay with the truth. Nothing else really matters if you've jettisoned the core truths of the gospel. And then along with that, so, you know, the doctrine is paramount, and then along with that comes that the good conscience, right, the living out of the implications of the gospel, to live a life of integrity, that your, your life matches your profession. Fighting sin, striving for godliness, it doesn't mean, you know, the good conscience doesn't mean that we never sin, but it means that sin is followed by repentance and by reconciliation. So at any point in time, right, ideally the believer should be able to say that they've repented of all known sin, and so their conscience is clear. That's what that means. And it's especially important for ministers, right, to have a clear conscience, to be free of habitual sin, lest they be exposed as hypocrites and the name of Christ be tarnished, right? Those two go in hand, they go hand in hand, and our actions follow our belief. To hold the faith, to maintain a clear conscience, a good conscience, and then he goes directly into a warning. He gives us this example of others who have gone astray, right, who have not held the, the faith and a good conscience. And he says they've made shipwreck of their faith by rejecting these. So these are, an, these are a sober uh, warning, an example for Timothy and for us. They did not struggle against sin. They didn't see the value in keeping this clean conscience, and they drifted. So I'm going to shamelessly repeat a couple things that Dennis said uh, in his sermon last Sunday, because they're exactly to this point when he was talking about spiritual drifting and this problem of kind of falling away from the faith. And he reminded us that it's, it can be imperceptible, right? That it kind of happens by degrees, gradually, that it really requires nothing of us, right? The Christian life requires effort. Drifting does not require effort. It's very easy in that sense. Uh, you just stop struggling against sin, right? You neglect prayer or worship or the word or the fellowship of the saints, so it doesn't necessarily require this kind of seismic shift or this earth-shattering event. It's just these subtle shifts of you know, putting your career above Christ or desiring social acceptance above Christ, 
trusting in wealth, any of these things that we are kind of prone to do, that can become God instead of God. And so uh, all the biblical metaphors for the Christian life involve toil and struggle and sweat. The, the soldier is referenced. I think all these are in Second Timothy, actually. The soldier, the farmer, the athlete. Right? It's this idea of training and effort and work. And something that is alive struggles. Something that is dead does not, right? And so there's this sense of, like, you've been regenerated to newness of life, and so that's why we experience this warfare and this struggle and tension with sin. And in terms of the use of warnings, right, this is for us, I want to affirm as well that God is the one who preserves us, right? So it's not like we have to keep ourselves in the faith. He will keep us to the end. God will bring every child of home. There is assurance of salvation. Anyone who departs from the faith was not actually truly saved to begin with. But Dennis pointed out, I thought this was good, that God ordains the means as well as the ends, and that he actually gives us these warnings in Scripture for our good so that we have this kind of healthy fear and motivation to press on. The Westminster Confession of Faith, I think, puts this really well. I want to read chapter 14 on saving faith. This is paragraph 2. It says, By this faith... A Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. I hope you caught that in the middle there. He says, trembling at the threatenings is actually part of saving faith. That's a mark of a true believer, that taking warning seriously is actually a good thing. That means that, that, that this faith is in us, essentially. If we are blasé about it, then that's a very scary place to be. All right, so you have this, warnings, the, uh, this warning, and then in verse 20, Paul mentions a couple names specifically, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus is actually mentioned again in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul spells out that he was teaching that the resurrection had already happened. And Paul refers, excuse me, to this teaching here in verse 20 um, as blasphemy. He says he's handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. I don't see any indication here that they explicitly cursed God so I think the implication is that they've misrepresented God by their false teaching. So they've distorted the truth. They've distorted God's revelation of himself. And in so doing, that's where the blasphemy connection comes in. And so Paul says that he has handed them over to Satan. That means that Paul has put them out of the church, right? They've been excommunicated for this false teaching. And so what Paul is saying here with this idea of handed over to Satan He's saying that Satan actually has some measure of authority in this present evil age, right? He's called the ruler over this present evil age. And so by being cast out of the church, they're essentially leaving Christ's kingdom and reentering Satan's realm in some sense, right? So Christ governs his church, but Satan is called the ruler of this present evil age. So that's the, the kind of comparison there. That's why he's saying they're kind of exiting the church and kind of reentering Satan's realm. We see actually very similar language in 1 Corinthians 5, Verses 3 through 5, when Paul is talking about this sin issue in the, the church in Corinth, and he says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, 
And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so we have this unrepentant sinner uh, who's indulging in the lust of the flesh. They're in this habitual sin. And so it kind of gives the sense that by removing the restraining kind of influence and benefit of the church and allowing the sinner to indulge in that sin to the max, right, the goal is that in God's mercy, they may come to see the folly of this reckless pursuit of sin and return to and, and repent. So the purpose of discipline, that's one of the primary purposes of discipline. We get a really good explanation of this in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 30, and in our book of church order as well. I'm just going to summarize these for the sake of time, but they lay out uh, the purposes of discipline, one being the glory of God, and then secondly, the purity of the church, right, which is benefiting from this, this act of deterrence of sin, and then the reclamation of sinner, right, is always the goal of repentance to, to bring the person back, back into the fold. And so that's what Paul highlights at the end of 1 Corinthians 5.5 5, when he says, when his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's talking about that reclamation of the sinner as the goal of of the discipline there. And so I think all three are, are present in the example of Hymenaeus and Alexander as well. Right? We have these false teachers who are blaspheming God and dishonoring Christ. And so we have this public discipline which um, honors Christ by defending his name and his truth. It's good for the body to have that cancer removed, right? to have the false teaching removed, lest others be led astray by it. And then it's this serious wake-up call to the sinners that they might come to their senses and repent. And uh, excommunication, think about that in terms of church discipline, um, that is, that's really the, the last resort in a sense of church discipline. Right? We never wanted to get that far. Um, we have several kind of layers, I guess, or different censures that uh, we will administer in the church uh, with admonishment and then suspension from the table, and then excommunication is uh, really that, the last one when someone is really unrepentant. All right, any Comments or questions there before we move into chapter 2. All right, 1 Timothy 2. We are not going to make it through verse 7, as I said at the beginning, but I want to tackle several of these to make sure we can finish uh, chapter 2 next week. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth." All right, so having described what characterizes the false teachers and this lifestyle that revolves around the myths and the speculations, Paul's now turning in chapter 2 to describe what the godly lifestyle entails. What does it look like? And he's going to discuss matters of corporate church practice in chapters 2 and 3 and describing prayer specifically here, prayer and worship, and then um, self-control, second part of chapter 2, and then he'll get into qualifications of elders and deacons. First, he talks about prayer. 
So prayer must be absolutely foundational for the life of the believer. It's hard to overstate the importance of prayer. The true child of God delights to talk to his father. That's what it is, right? It's talking to God. It's, it's a mark of this relationship that we have with God. It's communion and fellowship with him. It's also how we fight sin, as we saw earlier. And it's a mark of humility and maturity as we grow more and more into this distrust of self and this daily dependence on God. So Paul here in, in verse 1 does not present an exhaustive list of what you could pray for or about. For instance, he doesn't list um, adoration or confession, which are part of prayer, but he's kind of piling up these terms that connote with prayer for the cumulative effect, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. And Calvin pointed out this, this use of this multiple, the multiple terms here kind of speaks to the fervency and constancy with which we should approach prayer. They're saying, how should we pray? We should offer all kinds of prayers, is essentially what Paul is saying here. Supplications is you know, asking something or asking God for something out of a sense of need. A prayer is a general term for prayer, uh, just talking about that. Talking about talking to God, that's what it means, is talking to God. Intercessions, so this is praying to God on behalf of the needs of others specifically. So similar to supplication, but usually refer to praying on behalf of someone else or for someone else. And then thanksgiving is thanking God for his providence. So Paul says we should pray with all, kind of all types of prayers here. Um, and then he says, who should we pray for? We should pray for all people or all types of people. So the, the word all here, uh, that's in English as all, uh, is a Greek word, pas, and it's used, it has a couple different ways that it can be interpreted. Here, when used, when reference to this group, uh, the best understanding, I think, is it means some of all types, or kind of all manner of a selection of a representation from the group. So Paul, it can also mean like every individual one, each or every, but it doesn't make any sense at all in this context. So the way to understand this is not that Paul is saying, you need to pray for every single person on the planet, but he's saying, pray for all types of people. We get This word is all over scripture, kind of a good example of this and how it's translated differently, actually. I think we see in Matthew, uh, Matthew 4, Matthew 4.23, uh, the ESV translates it every, so it's saying Christ is going around and he's healing every affliction or every disease. We actually get, um, I think, probably a, a more accurate translation in the King James Version when it says all manner of diseases or all manner of sicknesses, that he's, he's healing of all types of sicknesses that he encounters, if that makes sense. And so the idea here in 1 Timothy is that there's no one we shouldn't pray for, that we should pray for all types of people. We should pray for our friends, for our family members, uh, for our coworkers, for people in the church. We should pray for our neighbors. We should pray for the civil authorities, for church officers. We should be an interceding people, praying not only for ourselves, but also for the needs of others. And especially civil authorities, when he says, for kings and all who are in high positions. So why should we pray for civil authorities in particular? Why does he list this here, or emphasize it, I should say? And he gives us the answer right away. He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I think the, you know, in thinking about this, I was reflecting that in addition to ourselves, because we ourselves probably have the greatest ability to determine how peaceful and quiet our lives are. But beyond that, uh, civil authorities probably have a greater ability to influence the quality of our lives than anyone else. 
they have the, a great ability to determine how peaceful and quiet our lives are. Um, if they are doing what they're supposed to do, right, if they're punishing evil and praising what is good, then society will be much more peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified than the opposite, right, than if they're calling evil good and good evil, if they're failing to restrain evil. Calvin, in his commentary, had a really good quote on this, I thought. And he says, uh, we must keep in mind the principle that God appointed magistrates for the protection of religion and for upholding public peace and decency, just as the earth was ordained to produce food. In the same way as when we pray for our daily bread, we ask God to bless the land and make it fertile. So we should regard magistrates as the normal means through which God bestows his blessings. So he's saying magistrates are the, the means that God has ordained for uh, maintaining order and decency in society, and that's for our good. So good government is a great blessing to society. Uh, we think of um, Jeremiah 29, 7, right? This, the letter of the exiles, and so he's saying, excuse me, not the letter of the exiles. He's saying, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So they're in exile, they're in Babylon, um, and he's telling them that this kind of like, this common good, right, that'll come in Babylon's prosperity, they will also experience some measure of prosperity. Um, and the same is true for us, right? We are in exile as well as we're waiting for the, you know, the eternal kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. We're here on earth in exile, and so we can do the same thing, right? We can pray for our civil authorities. That's a positive action we can take in this regard. So Paul continues in verse 3. He says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So he says this, this quiet lifestyle is pleasing to God and should therefore be the ambition of the Christian, that we should actually desire to live this quiet and godly life, which kind of sounds unambitious, doesn't it, when you think about it? And I think sometimes for us there's this tension between you know, the kind of quiet and godly life and this desire to do big things. And probably it's more so for younger generations, maybe by the time you get older, you know, you get stamped out a little bit. I remember hearing and seeing a lot in college and maybe a little bit shortly thereafter, people would say things like, I want to turn the world upside down for Christ. You know, these kind of like super ambitious goals. Um, and I think, you know, what we see in um, Scripture is this call to be faithful where you are, this call to be faithful in the small things. Um, it takes humility to, le- to lead a quiet life, to not seek attention or recognition, and to do so faithfully over many, many years. You know, to just go to work day in and day out, to work diligently for your employer day after day, or to um, stay at home and change another diaper and wash endless cycles of dishes and loads of laundry, you know, year after year, to take meals to those who are sick, to just serve the saints behind the scenes, right? These are not really that exciting things to do, but God elevates the mundane throughout Scripture. I love Colossians 317, right? whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. He's saying that whatever you're doing, you're serving Christ in that. And so even in that boring or that unexciting thing, he's saying you're serving Christ, right? So do it with excellence. Do it to the best of your ability, knowing that you're serving God and not men. So we've got, um, he says, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And then continuing on, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the, the thrust of the passage here is to be fervent in prayer for the salvation of the lost because 
God desires um, all people, all types of people, both Jews and Greeks, to be saved in contrast to the exclusivity of the false teachers, so the Judaizers and the Gnostics of the day, right? And so we have this emphasis on God saving the Gentiles, and I think that's what he's getting at here when he says all people. It's this inclusion of the Gentiles. We'll see it in verse 5, and then also verse 7, when he says, for this I was appointed a preacher and apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So he's coming against this false teaching. We have these groups who have limited salvation to unbiblical categories, whether it's the Judaizers with this emphasis on kind of Jewish ceremonial law and cultural observance and that that's necessary for salvation, or Gnosticism, right, with this kind of secret knowledge that limits salvation to only those in the inner circle, right, who have this this knowledge. And Paul is saying, no, it's not like that at all. God desires um, all people to be saved, both Jew and Greek. And so what he's doing here in this section on prayer He's actually tying the prayers of the saints and this quiet and godly lifestyle to the salvation of the lost, right? He's saying essentially that our prayers are effective, that God actually hears them and answers them in accordance with his sovereignty, right, as mysterious as that is. And also that this lifestyle lived of integrity, lived before the world, is a powerful complementary witness to the profession of the gospel, that the loving the church, caring for our family members, being upstanding citizens, all of these things are the ordinary means that God actually uses in the salvation of the lost. So the church should be the church, right? It should be devoted to the preaching, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers, as it says in Acts 2. Uh, this is what we are to be about. All right, and just uh, let me cover five just in the next couple minutes here, and then we'll wrap up. Um, so verse 5, or excuse me, first, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's wrap up verse 4 first. Um, so that, uh, that come to the knowledge of the truth, I think that highlights the fact that there's this cognitive aspect of salvation that ordinarily, and I know there's you know exceptions, we think of elect in, um, infants, for instance, but ordinarily one must believe certain things to be saved, right? You can't just believe anything about Christ or about God and be saved. There are fundamental doctrines about his person and work that are the the core of the gospel. Um, We think of the three parts of faith as being knowledge and assent and trust, and knowledge is that first one. You actually have to know the truth. And we read the uh, Confession of Faith 14.2, which is describing that we receive and rest on Christ alone for salvation, right? You have to believe that to be saved. And let me just touch on verse 5 very briefly, because it kind of goes along with 4 as well. Uh, when he's saying there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men. So God, he's saying God desires salvation for Gentiles and Jews. And now he's describing this way of salvation to the only God. And so he highlights the idea that there's only one God here. And while it's, it's true that there's one God in contrast to like polytheism and the polyist, polytheistic cultures of the day, Calvin pointed out that He's highlighting the fact there's one God and one world, and so all people in the world are under that power of that same God who is God our Savior. So he's highlighting basically that there's one way to God. Romans, for both the Jew and the Greek, just to put a bow on it, which is exactly what he says in Romans. Uh, Romans three twenty nine through 30, he says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And then in Romans 10, 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's saying there's one God, there's one mediator for everyone, uh, both Jew or Greek. Um, and, so there's, and so the thrust of that is that there's only one God, and so there's one way to be saved by him, which is Christ, for all people. I think of John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And Christ is that mediator that it talks about, um, this mediator who, who reconciles God and man from this dispute and this quarrel between us and God because of our sin. He is the mediator who brings peace. And then wrapping up verse 5 very quickly here, it says the man Jesus Christ. I just want to touch on this for a second. He is actually able to be our mediator because he was fully man, because he has that human nature. Uh, He is one like us, right? A legitimate representative of the human race, able to die on our behalf, as Hebrews 14 talks about it. He is this high priest who is, uh, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, right? Fully, fully God and fully man, that both of those natures are absolutely essential for the atonement, right? He had to be fully man to stand in our place, to be a representative like us, to, to bear our sin, to, take, to, to be that substitutionary atonement, right? And then fully God to actually exhaust the wrath of God on our behalf. Let me stop there. I was kind of a blitzkrieg at the end. Thank you for your attention. We pray for us, and we'll go to the next service. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you had mercy on us. We do pray that we would be a praying people, that we would pray often uh, for ourselves and also for others. We do pray uh, that you would bless us as we go into the next service, that you would open our hearts to hear your word preached. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.